I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Little Atom's favourite GP, Gavin Francis, talks about his experience of COVID-19 in his new book, Intensive Care. Gavin Francis has worked across four continents as a surgeon, emergency physician, medical officer with the British Antarctic Survey, and latterly as a GP. He has described the pandemic response of 2020 as the most intense period of his 20-year career in medicine. He's the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, Adventures in Human Being, which was the BMA Book of the Year, and Shapeshifters, among many others. And Gavin's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is Intensive Care, a GP, a community and COVID-19. Gavin, welcome back to Little Atoms. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Neil. It's always a pleasure to be on Little Atoms. Let's talk first of all about, I guess, when you first became aware of COVID-19 as a thing from a, I guess, from a professional perspective. Well, um. As a GP in NHS Lothian in Edinburgh, I'm in receipt of emails fairly regularly from Health Protection Scotland, who's the public health body for Scotland. And um, usually these are about distant outbreaks, things that will never, ever trouble our shores. And on January the 13th, 2020, I had an email from them describing a a novel Wuhan coronavirus, um, which was causing some concern out there. But it did say that reassuringly, there's no evidence of human to human transmission. And they were optimistic, hopeful that with monitoring of flights in and out of Wuhan to Heathrow and the fact that it didn't seem to be spreading human to human, that it would all be fine. So that was the first I I heard of the virus. And then over the subsequent weeks, um, I started to get these health protection emails started to come in thick and fast. And and you talk in the book about, you know, those early days of late January, early February, you were still traveling, you go to a conference. Mm. And we also, I remember we we traveled to the US in the beginning of February of last year. And this was definitely Definitely a background noise. There was more people than you would normally expect to see at the airport wearing masks, but it still seemed to me like something that was a distant thing that wasn't actually going to reach our shores at that time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I flew out in the first week in February to join a panel at the New York Academy of Sciences, and there was a I was getting a hail of text messages from United Airlines telling me that if I had been in China, I would be turned back at the border. But, you know, we've subsequently shown that the virus 
that reached the United States at that time was from Europe. You know, it was subsequently shown with various mapping studies that it was a European travel ban that might have been a benefit at that time. But yeah, it was just that this is one of the terribly difficult things about managing this virus. The lag times are so long. The incubation period is so long. There's such a high proportion of people don't show any symptoms. It's just proven really very, very difficult. But like, you know, I remember those days of concern, but also the very impressive campaign coming out of China showing how well they were managing it. You know, they locked down 20 million people. They were building hospitals in a matter of days. And I cast my mind back then to the SARS-1 of 2002-2003. And at that time, the potential catastrophic pandemic was controlled by exactly those kind of measures. It didn't reach the rest of the world. And so I was very hopeful that this one too would be stopped, just as SARS-1 had been stopped. So let's talk about what's different about COVID-19 then. What's sort of so insidious about this particular variant that meant that it wasn't? Well, a big part of why it spread so far and so fast is actually paradoxically because it's less fatal than SARS-1. I mean, SARS-1 would kill about 1 in 10 of the people that became infected by it. Whereas um, this SARS coronavirus 2 is the fatality rates are much lower down, sort of 1, 2, 3%, depending on which population you look at. And so that huge fatality rate of SARS 1 meant that actually outbreaks of it were easier to spot and to close down. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is this huge proportion of asymptomatic carriage and spread. So you've got a virus where 30% of people that are carrying it don't know they've got it. It makes it truly extraordinarily problematic to try and isolate the affected people because how are you going to um, get them tested if they don't even know they don't even have any symptoms and so that's been yet another um, aspect of this virus that's been very very difficult it's also so slow because you know you get the virus it can take up to 14 days for you to show symptoms then it takes about seven to ten days even if you've got symptoms until you you've got significant enough problems that you might need hospital and so we're talking about three to four weeks between getting the virus and ending up in hospital. And that introduces a a huge time lag into testing the efficacy of any particular measures. You know, government does something like, for example, close the schools, and they have to wait at least four weeks before they start to see whether that has had any effect. And so that's made all this very, very difficult too. And remind us what the the virus actually does too. Let's think about some of the people that have not survived it, that have caught the disease and, and died yeah. from it in ITU, in a hospital, probably on a mm-hmm. ventilator. You talk about how there's two stages as to what the virus mm-hmm. does to our body. So there, there's a, a virological stage where the virus is actually attacking and replicating within your tissues, usually most commonly within the lining of your nose and your lungs and your throat, Um, but it can also infect your gut. That gets called the virological phase because the virus is actively replicating. And then there's the immunological phase. There's a, a phase where the immune system, in setting itself up to try to attack the virus, I mean, I'm oversimplifying a bit here, but essentially the immunological phase is when people end up needing ITU because misdirected messages from the immune system end up attacking the lungs, attacking the blood flow through the lungs, blood flow through the rest of the body. And there's been people who've had all kinds of problems. There's an encephalitis you can get with this where it affects the brain. There's a myocarditis you can get with this where it affects the heart muscle. And so all kinds of tissues of the body can end up being affected, caught in the crossfire of this disease. 
this virus is so tremendously um, devious that it can it can spread so well so fast through asymptomatic carriage, but also just by confusing and, and bamboozling essentially the immune system. The immune system finds it so difficult to attack. And obviously, when a, a novel virus like this first appears, the sort of overall medical response, I guess, is firefighting for a while, trying to deal with it in the dark. But then the longer a pandemic goes on, obviously, more research is done, more insight into the course of the disease. And later in the book, you talk about how clinicians started to see things that were connected, like skin rashes and something mm-hmm. you talk about, COVID toes. Mm-hmm. So what's going on there? Well, you know, like all diseases, like illness is a cultural construct as much as it's a kind of microbiological construct. You know, we understand illness differently depending on what culture we're from and also with time as we see different aspects of it. And when we first were confronted with COVID, it was characterized very much as a lung disease a disease that that we just needed ventilators. If we could only get enough ventilators to support the lungs through the worst phase of that terrible lung-clogging immunological storm that can happen, then people would fully recover. And then there was, uh, it devolved again, and we started to see that it could affect children very rarely, but children could have a really complex immunological response to this. And there was a, a brief flurry of panic when we saw that some children in London were ending up in intensive care with this, but the numbers were very tiny. And then we began to see that it could have um, long-term effects, these long COVID effects. And then also we began to see that it was a a disease of blood vessels as much as it was of the lungs. And I think that's what you're referring to. There was some Spanish dermatologists who essentially first started to, to make a really thorough survey of these effects on the skin and on the blood flow of the virus. And they showed all the ways in which the virus can disturb and disrupt blood flow to the skin so effectively that some people even were having parts of their skin dying off. Now, the blood vessels that are the longest in your body and that are subject to the effect of gravity the most are the ones that go, of course, all the way down to your toes. And so that's probably the commonest place that I've seen skin manifestations of COVID is in the toes because the effect of gravity and the effect of the blood vessels not working particularly well, we see the these almost like, it looks a bit like burst blood vessels under the skin. And it's because the circulation is being so disturbed by the virus. And you mentioned long COVID. So as the pandemic has developed, people have been recovering from it, but seemingly continuing to have ongoing after effects. So to what extent are we thinking that COVID is almost like a, could be a chronic ailment? Yeah, I mean, the numbers seem relatively small of people that are affected that way. And there's still not a lot that isn't fully understood, of course, just like there's a lot that isn't understood about any kind of post-viral fatigue syndrome. So um, yeah, fatigue is very prominent with some patients that I've seen. Also breathlessness, people that are staying breathless for a lot longer than you would have thought. You know, it looks as if their lungs had recovered, but they still feel quite breathless. I've had some patients that just don't get their smell back for months and months. So the only symptom they ever had of COVID was the loss of their sense of smell and taste. They never got any even any fever or even any any breathlessness. And that has never come back. So even months and months down the line. So it seems to be a, a quite a wide constellation. But thankfully, most people I've known with COVID have made a full recovery, by far the majority. Gavin, I want to get us on to some of your actual personal experiences across the year of COVID. Um, first of all, let's talk about why did you first decide to document this? How did we end up with this book? 
there was a couple of different reasons, really. I mean, I know, I think, uh, Neil, you've You've had me on Little Atoms four or five times. You know well that one of the ways I understand experience and make sense of the world is by writing books about it. I enjoy writing. It gives me a sense of deeper understanding of my subject. It helps me see things in perspective. It helps me organize my thoughts, essentially. And so, of course, when this happened, it's the biggest thing to happen in medicine for a century. And I'm a doctor who writes books. So, of course, I was going to try and start writing about it to make sense of it. So that was one aspect. The other aspect is that particularly in the early months of the pandemic, February, March, April, there was a very dominant narrative in the media I could see all around me all about intensive care units. That is valid and it's important. And I think a lot of media outlets were pushing that in order to try and frighten people sufficiently to obey the restrictions, which was, which was a worthwhile thing to do. But it was also a very tiny part of what this disease is causing. And actually, my day-to-day life as a general practitioner was utterly, utterly transformed, both because I had to protect my patients from the virus and protect myself, but also because the effects of lockdown had such a transformative effect on all of my work. Actually, many of the stories in this book, as you know, you know are not stories of people with COVID. They're stories of people whose lives have been thrown out of kilter by the restrictions and by the lockdowns. People like elderly grandparents who haven't been able to see their grandchildren for a year and the effects on that. Students who haven't been able to go to university in the way they might expect. Teenagers who've suddenly lost the capacity to be able to sit their exams and how the mental health corollaries of that. And I wanted to give that side of the story too, so that when the reckoning comes to be assimilated of this pandemic, we don't just end up with a story about intensive care units. But maybe some people might argue that the title intensive care is is provocative. And I didn't really mean it provocatively. I meant it in the sense that both those words, intensive and care, are equally valid for the kind of work that district nurseries do, that home carers do, GPs do, and charity workers whose stories I tell. You know, intensive just means stretched, pulled tight, pushed to the limit. And care is something that I do all the time. Uh, My whole of my uh, professional work is about care and caring. So I wanted to almost reclaim those terms for the community where I work and the work that I love there. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. to Little Adams. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Gavin Francis and we're talking about his latest book, Intensive Care, a GP, a community and COVID-19. You mentioned how utterly this pandemic changed the way that you were able to to interact with your uh, patients in your GP practice. Tell us about when you first encountered COVID in a clinical setting. Well, we now know in retrospect that we were encountering it in February, but we had no access to tests and um, we were just trying to take as best precautions we could as the PPE was starting to arrive, the, the aprons, the masks, the gloves, the visors. I mean, I my first patients in retrospect that had COVID I saw in mid-February, but that was at a time when we were still only testing people that had been in East Asia or then in Lombardy and then other places in North Italy. And so the patients that I was seeing who had a new seemingly viral respiratory tract infection that was making them very hot and very breathless undoubtedly had COVID, but we had no access to testing then. Once we got further on into April, and there was a lot more COVID around in the community and we could get access to testing, then it became apparent just how how widespread it was. And, you know, as a GP, I wasn't having to send too many patients to a hospital. You know, that's one of the great complexities of managing this virus. Most people I saw with COVID recovered fine at home. It's just because there is this significant minority who go on to need supportive care, oxygen for weeks, even um, the kind of ventilation measures that are only provided in an intensive care department. Because we were having a small, a significant minority of people needing those kind of things, that's why we had to lock down, because it was very obvious we were going to overwhelm our ITUs. And it's, it's interesting, we could talk about, if you like, about we're having the debate now as a society about whether we go for a zero COVID approach and try to, to eliminate it completely the way New Zealand and some East Asian countries are doing, or whether we have to find a way to live with it. But back then in April, the rhetoric was very much about, we just have to protect the ITU departments because we don't have the staff, never mind the ventilator numbers, to support everybody if, if we let this disease just run rampant. You're obviously still having to go out and visit some patients, do home visits and stuff. So I want you to talk us through the rigmarole of basically getting kitted up to perform a home visit. Yeah, so if you're 
the moment, we're still trying to minimise face-to-face contact time. Um, although, as as the vaccination programme rolls out, it's providing an awful lot of reassurance. But we have to minimise that time that we're in someone's house. So if I have to go and see somebody who probably has COVID in their own home, we now know that the air in that house has got an awful lot of virus particles hanging suspended in the air, that there's a certain amount of time you can be in a room like that before you breathe in a sufficient quantity of those particles that you will become infected. So we very quickly developed as a profession a system whereby we would phone people from outside the house and get the maximum history we could. Then we would ask the patient if they could get out of their bed to come and sit as near the front door as possible. All this was on the telephone. And then we would put on, we're wearing scrubs, you know, so then we'd put on a visor, an apron, a mask, double gloves. And then we'd go in with all the equipment we might need to examine the patient, uh, stripped back to a bare minimum and then put in a small poly bag. Then I would go in to see the patient, just exchange a few words and then keep the contact time in in the house. So basically just an examination, checking, listening to the lungs, checking the oxygen levels, checking the temperature. And then that was it. I would actually often, if I could, put a mask on the patient because if the patient was breathing out a lot of virus, then obviously the first thing I want to do walking into the room is put a mask on the patient. And then after having made that assessment, step back outside and finish the consultation again on the phone. But before we have to do that, you know, of course, there's a there's a rigmarole of having to take everything off again, because you've now got gloves and apron and everything that, that you're, you're wearing could potentially ha- be contaminated with the virus. And so you have to take off the first layer of gloves, then use the second pair of gloves to clean everything down with chloride or um, alcohol wipes and stuff that all into a bag, take off the visor, we'll clean that, put that down to dry, and then go back to the car and then phone the patient about what you were going to do. So home visits just took an extraordinarily long time compared to how they ordinarily would. And um, my work, normally I see 25 to 30 people face-to-face a day, of which two or three would be home visits. But now for almost a year, we've had to cut that right back. And and at the moment, I'm only seeing five or six people face-to-face each day because of all these and restrictions and complexities that we have to go through in order to keep everybody safe. At various times in this book, you spend time professionally on the Orkneys. And so I wanted to talk about what the what the implications of a of a pandemic are for these island communities. Yeah, so um, I first went to do a locum. It's something that I do two or three times a year is go and cover one of the smaller islands in Orkney that only have one GP that covers them 24 hours a day. And you can go for various lengths of time and, and cover that community. And I went to Orkney very soon after returning from New York in February. At that time, we could hear that this virus was coming, but it hadn't certainly hadn't reached Orkney. We now know in retrospect that it had reached um, most of the rest of the UK. And um, I was just on my way to Kirkwall to get the ferry. And I remember I got a text message from NHS Orkney asking me if I had time to pop by the hospital and be fitted for an FFP3 mask. You know, these are with a very tight fitting masks that are used in intensive care. The reason being that it was thought that when confronted with somebody with COVID, if you then had to do CPR on such a patient, you would need an FFP3 mask in order to keep yourself safe because doing CPR on a patient that was breathing out COVID could be quite dangerous. 
And um, I asked, I thought, that's a bit unexpected. You know, as a GP, I normally never need to use an FFP3 mask. It's not something that I would ever contemplate having to, to be fitted for. And that really brought home to me the, the seriousness of the threat and how quickly it was coming. Then I went back in, in um, June and covered the COVID assessment centre there in Orkney for a week which was interesting. Again, in another way, they had a very good system in Orkney, fantastic system, whereby on the mainland, anybody with a fever or respiratory illness would be assessed by whichever doctor was covering the COVID clinic. So I could do a COVID test and that we had access to better PPE and so on. And it was very good for the the rest of the GPs in Orkney not to have to, to worry about all that extra COVID stuff if they had a query COVID patient. A thing, though, that I think you're implying by the question is island communities are partly very much protected because it's quite easy to close off ferries or close off flights. But also the very fact of being island communities mean that resources, although they're very, very good, could easily be overwhelmed. So if um, if a, an outbreak did happen on one of the smaller islands of Orkney, you know, there's only got access to so much oxygen. You've only got access to so much capacity for the air ambulance. You've only got access to, to limited HDU beds, for example, in Kirkwall. And so island communities are very much more vulnerable, I could say, although they're also uh, more protected. As well as these sort of regular trips up up to the Orkney to work as a locum that you do, another thing that is something that um, that I, I know you've been doing for a long time is working with clinics that cater for the homeless population of Edinburgh and refugee populations. And you talk in the book about again about the sort of response to homelessness in Edinburgh during the time of this pandemic. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh yeah, I mean it was really inspirational to see, and and I hope the book manages to get across some of the silver linings of this year mm. you know that there's been such awful things we've had to come to do in terms of it's been atrocious but there's also been some real benefits and one of those was seeing how quickly homelessness was solved in my home city you know that we were told repeatedly in in early march that the best protection against the virus was your own front door but of course there's a sizable population of people who have the worst health outcomes in our society who didn't have a front door and with the help of charities, um, charities like Streetwork, like the Cyrenians, like the Bethany Trust, together with Scottish Government funding and the council, it was just tremendous. Within a space of days, the rough sleeping population of Edinburgh was housed in hotels. And that had a great effect. Not only did it protect them against COVID, it protected people, the rest of the, the citizens of Edinburgh against COVID. It also meant that this very transient population, who's very difficult to get hold of from a point of view of public health, were all in one place. So people could actually get them vaccinated properly against things they needed to be immunized for. They could start methadone programs on people who had chaotic heroin use. They could do all sorts of brilliant public health interventions because the population was actually in one place for a change. And so I think that's a really tremendous credit to those charities that are involved and the the doctors that work full time in the access practice, the homeless practice in Edinburgh. It was very impressive to see. The book covers pretty much the first wave last summer, the, you know, last spring and summer of the pandemic. 
um, and as you sort of end the book, we're looking into the winter and and as it you know as it happened, a definite second wave coming. But also, you start to talk about you know the beginnings of the research into a vaccine. Obviously, we're now in the position where and you yourself are taking part in the vaccination program, which we can talk about in a minute. But just before we do, remind us of the you talk about the particular difficulties of finding a vaccine for a coronavirus. Why is it a um, a particularly tricky virus to find a vaccine for? Um, it's been tricky for various reasons, you know, and I'm speaking here as a as GP, just in case you have any immunologists listening. But, um, <laughs> essentially, um, you know, from the point of view of your body, the field of action for a coronavirus is outside. You know, it's in the cells that are lining mm. your nose and your lungs. And, and so, your immune system doesn't get at those cells all that easily. As far as the majority of your immune system is concerned, it's happening somewhere else. And so that's one problem. Another problem we're seeing now with the um, new variants is the speed of uh, mutation of these kinds of viruses. And that has been a real, a real difficulty in establishing which parts of the virus to target. Um, you know, the Chinese scientists that first started researching this SARS coronavirus had it, had it sequenced within hours of it being isolated. And that sequence of um, genetic sequence of the virus has been available um, now for, for over a year. And so the scientists devising vaccines had to choose a bit of that protein of the virus that would seem to bear the most fruit. That's one issue. Then, you know, there was another problem in that various attempts were made to build a vaccine for SARS-1. And SARS-1 had a real problem creating a vaccine because you could make a vaccine against it. But then the experimental animals that were then subsequently vaccinated with the SARS-1 jab would have a really florid, horrendous reaction if they subsequently came into contact with SARS-1. So that it was, it was almost like the... Um, the vaccine worked too well because your immune system would react so floridly to encountering that virus that actually you would, your body would be damaged by its reaction. So these were all huge problems that had to be overcome. And I have to say that of the many silver linings that I try and talk about, the speed at which this vaccine has been not only invented, trialed and rolled out has been really breathtaking. It's been uh, quite a, a phenomenon to see. And that's because of lots of different people who are extremely, extremely clever all coming together and allowing their professional barriers that normally separate them to drop and trusting one another and sharing expertise around the globe. And that is something that I hope will prove enduring from this pandemic, that people have seen just, just how much we can solve tricky medical scientific problems when everybody comes together and the, the experts are allowed to get on with their work without too much red tape. So what's it been like taking part in the vaccination programme? Oh, it's great. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's one of the most um, satisfying encounters, although it's one of the simplest encounters that I do. It's just giving people this sense of liberation. And I've seen, heard lots of great stories of the vaccine. Some people even who've lost family members, the relief on their faces when they finally get vaccinated, the feeling of hope that we've all been living under a real black cloud for, for 12 months now. And when you work in one of these mass vaccination centres and see the queues and queues of people coming through, I don't know, it just, it feels to me like one of humanity's great achievements if we manage to get past this this way. So it's been heartening on all lots of different levels. Uh, just one more question then. To what extent, I mean, obviously there's a vaccination programme going on, but the 
implication is that this might have to become a you know regular thing rather than COVID-19 being eradicated a la smallpox. Mm. Um, so to what extent do you think a lot of the things that we've been experiencing over the past year, whether it's lockdowns, whether it's masks, will become the new normal? Well, it's hard to say, Neil. It's just it's difficult to, to see into that slightly clouded crystal ball. I get the impression that much of this is a political decision rather than a public health decision. And I get the impression, just listening to some of the speeches of the politicians recently, that people are starting to give up on the idea of aiming for zero COVID because we would have to lock down for months and months. And already people are sick and tired of lockdown. We would also have to We'd have to quarantine absolutely everybody coming into the country. And um, there's a question over whether that's possible. And then there's the problem of uh, even if you eliminate uh, SARS coronavirus 2 from the United Kingdom, at some point you have to open up again. And, and it's unlikely that every other country in the world will do exactly the same. So I think I can see that we're aiming for COVID suppression and the hope that this virus will just mutate away from being so problematic for us. And at the same time, we've learned so much over the last year in terms of how to roll out mass vaccination programs. Maybe we're moving towards a world where everybody will get a jag once a year. And just like the flu that we do at the moment for the over 65s, you know, maybe we'll end up, every adult will have to get a COVID jag every year for a while until this goes. But that would still be better, I think, than living through this kind of restrictions that we've all had to endure for the past year. So I would hope that that's the way that we go. It's just so tremendously effective. You know, they're just the, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. It's just a few pounds, a few pounds per person. Not that much. The Pfizer jag is only, what is it, $14, $15 per jag? You know, these figures are absolutely tiny compared to the, the social economic cost of this virus. And so if we can develop a system whereby we quickly, effectively, efficiently roll out this kind of vaccination program, even if it has to be annually, that will still be a much better world going forward. So I've been talking to Gavin Francis. We've been talking about his latest book, Intensive Care, a GP, a community, and COVID-19. It's a welcome collection book from Profile. Gavin, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm.